Hey everyone, this is Matt, producer of the Hayek Program Podcast. If you've ever wondered to yourself, gosh, when is the Hayek Program Podcast going to have some merchandise available? Well, now we do. If you go to www.mercatusmerch.com, you'll find Mercatus's new podcast merchandise store, where the Hayek Program Podcast has a tote bag, a mug, and a water bottle available for purchase. It's just in time for the holidays too, so you can go grab one for yourself, a friend, or a family member. And for our listeners, if you use the promo code Hayek at checkout, you'll get 10% off your purchase. Once again, that's www.mercatusmerch.com and use the promo code Hayek to save 10% at checkout. And as always, we'd love to have you share the latest episode with those in your orbit. Word of mouth is the primary way we grow the podcast, and we are always eager to keep the conversation going with other lifelong learners. Thank you so much for being a great audience. And with that, let's get to the episode. You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is November 8th, uh, 2022, Election Day, and I am here with uh, Professor Ben Powell, uh, the director of the Free Market Institute. Uh, at Texas Tech University and a professor of economics in the business school at Texas Tech University. Uh, Ben, thanks a lot for uh, coming on here with me. Hey, Pete, anytime that I can hang out with you is a good time. All righty. I'm going to dive right into it. I want to talk a little bit about how you got interested in free market economics um, and uh, and whatnot when you were an undergraduate. So if you could just talk about you know, what interested you when you were a kid and got excited and what books influenced you uh, so that others can see that intellectual uh, train of thinking? Sure. Uh, Well, I didn't start off with uh, coming from an undergrad place where there were great free market thinkers, uh, quite the contrary, really. Uh, I did my undergraduate at University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Uh, You know, it's populated by people who graduated from Boston area schools for the most part who are professors. And uh, at that time, I guess we're kind of unreformed Keynesians for the most part or left-leaning otherwise. Uh, but I started actually as an accounting major and uh, found that boring and switched to finance. But as I kept taking economics courses, the logic of economics was far more compelling than what I was doing elsewhere. And I uh, just started taking more and more despite not really having an affinity with or an ideological affinity with the faculty, still the logic of economics is the logic of economics. And uh, that was attractive. Uh, But I specifically came to more of the learning systematically or not uh, learning more about free market ideas kind of accidentally when I was an undergraduate. I went to a a weekend seminar by the Leadership Institute, uh, Morton Blackwell's group there in D.C., and uh, it was more political than it was economics, but uh, they throw books to you in the crowd when you answer questions. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, they threw me capitalism and freedom. So wow. I, read, I read Friedman and I thought, wow, this is way better than the stuff I've been getting in class. I like this a lot more. And uh, so I read a little bit more about him and found out that Hayek was his colleague for a time at Chicago. So I read Road to Serfdom. Then I found out Mises was his teacher. So I started reading some Mises and then found Rothbard. Uh, it just kind of went on my own path reading as an undergrad and started thinking that I'd like to become a professor, uh, but I wasn't sure. And then um, one summer, I think between my junior and senior years, I went to uh, Mises University and spent a week there listening to you know professors who, like you, Pete, and, and like me today, are passionate about these ideas, are hardcore in their beliefs. And I was like, wow, this is so refreshing compared to what my standard undergrad education was. And uh, I'd like to definitely, I, I left, I went into that week thinking I would like to become a professor. I left that week knowing that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, which incidentally is kind of fun. Like one example of this, I remember Pete, you'll appreciate this. Rich Vetter was giving lectures there that year. Yeah, yeah. But he's up at the, the blackboard and, you know, he, he gets really uh, energetic when he's talking and sliders flying out of his mouth. He's got big, thick glasses. His hair's kind of going both ways. He's got chalk on his belly from rubbing up against the, the chalkboard. And I'm watching him and passionately talk about, um, I think, international trade or something. And I remember thinking, oh, when I get older, I want to be like that guy. <laughs> that is awesome. Kind of awkward 20-year-old. You know, <laughs> two things uh, about your story, which is kind of fascinating, I think. The first one is that, uh, you know, I always used to say to people that the most uh, left-wing economist, Larry Summers, let's say, is more right-wing than the most right-wing sociologist, right? And uh, because they believe in constraints and then they pursue the logic of choice within constraints, not because of any big ideological thing, just because of the logic of economics. I wonder whether or not that is still true in economics, in the way that economics is taught nowadays. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I think something's happened in the way that economics is taught um, outside of, you know, your program at Texas Tech and outside of our program here and a few other little pockets. But economics has become much more like theory-less and just, you know, big data and driven by a lot of um, you know, kind of very strong ideological priors on the left. So otherwise, our good friend Phil Magnus uh, couldn't find mistakes in professors from Berkeley, right? Uh, you know, that are, are dealing with uh, income inequality and whatnot. Um, the second thing is that I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Mises Institute at the time, because among the professors, you mentioned Vetter, but I was just wondering if like DiLorenzo, uh, was there and, and what kind of topics he was still talking about. I just had a, um, a colleague contact me about DiLorenzo last night um, because, you know, there's this uh, emergence of the uh, structure conduct performance paradigm in IO. And this person went and did a deep dive into DiLorenzo and they were like, oh my God, he wrote these great papers. And I was like, yes, he did. He was phenomenal. Um, he was one of my best you know, professors when I was a graduate student, you know, before he left to go take the job first at Chattanooga and then to Loyola. Um, but I mean, he, he just wrote some really, really great papers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and then at, then he also did a lot of economic history stuff, which I'm wondering, I'm just wondering what he was talking about when he was down at the Mises Institute or you ran into him 
or if Higgs was still talking at the Mises Institute then. Um, so just who were your lectures there? Yeah, so Tom definitely was, and he was doing a mix of things back then. So this is shortly after, not too long after Murray Rothbard passed away. Uh, so uh, DiLorenzo, he definitely lectured on antitrust stuff there, which was some of the stuff that I actually liked best in the readings I was doing prepping for that back when I was an undergraduate. Um, and his lectures were fantastic. So were Rich's. Uh, Joe Salerno, of course, was there, was, was a staple. Tom, uh, he did the antitrust stuff, but he was also doing... Lincoln stuff then, but before he had written uh, a, a Lincoln book. So there was a mix of uh, of history and straight up, uh, you know, antitrust price theory type type work. Um, definitely one of the more dynamic lecturers there who uh, was, a, he was a great, inspiring great. to watch. Um, he was a great teacher and a great uh, pragmatic advice giver to young economists on how to build a career. Um, you know, he, he, he just was phenomenal. And, you know, young people sometimes, you know, they come into these things years later and they, they never see, you know, those aspects of people because they're writing something new now or they're doing something else and, you know, they're moving on or whatever. But those papers by DiLorenzo, uh, you know, were just top notch stuff. He was great. Yeah. The, um, the profession needs to rediscover uh, DiLorenzo of the 1980s on antitrust and, and Armentano. Yeah, yep. I'm teaching Armentano this semester, and uh, and and the students were asking me about projects. So I said, "Here's a project for you." <laughs> the, uh, you know, Armentano showed you from 1890 to 1980 the antitrust case history. You know, 1980 was a long time ago now. <laughs> so you could do 1980 to 2020, and you could do exactly what Armentano did, the case history, and, and try to demonstrate again what cases were these so-called monopolists restricting output and raising price rather than actually, you know, increasing output and lowering price. And so therefore, you know, antitrust is the strategic use of government by businesses to crack down on competitors, right? And, you know, can you show that? And I said, you know, that would be phenomenal to do, you know, just do that. And I was also talking about DiLorenzo's papers um, and, you know, his, his predatory pricing paper and a bunch of other ones, all of which have been forgotten. Yeah. And they have to re be rediscovered. And, and you know, Pete, I think that what you're articulate and you're great at doing this with working with grad students is a progressive research program for a PhD student to start in their dissertation and to develop into a full-blown research program going forward. But because it's a missing gap in our, our kind of arsenal of practitioners right now, because back when I was a student 20 years ago working with you, this was stuff we all knew from reading these guys. But it, the argument was kind of won and the profession had moved on. So like, oh, why would we work on that? Just like uh, then, you know, you see waves of these things of, you know, after the financial crisis, a whole bunch of young people start working in, in the Austrian tradition, start working on money and banking again. And it's responding to the, the antitrust needs that now. Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, anyway, uh, I just, you know, it was um, it's this it's good applied economics with a passion for understanding the nuances of the of the beauty of economic reasoning that I thought that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of those organizations, you know, filled in gaps at that time. So anyway, you, you, you get this additional education and you're excited about becoming a professor. Um, I like the idea of looking at Benner and saying, I want to be uh, like that. Um, the, uh, uh, when my undergraduate teacher, uh, I asked him about being a professor. He told me that um, it's, it's a fantastic job because you only work 12 hours a week. 
And at that time, I was still really interested in in being involved in a bunch of other things that I wanted to do. Um, and so the idea that I could work 12 hours a week, then I could have a bunch of other time to do the other things. I thought that was awesome. So you, you, you make a decision to go off to graduate school. Um, you're from New England. Uh, you know, there's lots of schools up there. Um, you know, what, what made your, what drove your decision matrix in terms of, you know, narrowing down schools and, and the process of doing that? Yeah. Well, I applied at a few different places, but there was no decision once I got a fellowship offer at George Mason at that time. Uh, so this would be, I guess. Texas Tech didn't exist at that time. No, (laughs) Texas Tech didn't have this type of center going on. There was, you know, Auburn was kind of winding down its PhD program that had that influence at that time. NYU wasn't really on my radar. So when George Mason came through with the fellowship, uh, that's where I was going. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, when I say George Mason, uh, when Pete Betke and department came through, because you were relatively, uh, what, three years back at George Mason, then two years back? At yeah, George yeah, Mason. I was just, I was just back. And, two uh, years, maybe. Uh, 2000, and, 2000, you came? I showed up in fall of 2000, so spring of 2000. Yeah, so I was that, was my, that was my, uh, my, my second year there. Yeah. Uh, nine, so. well, yeah, yeah. Stringham came my first year. And so he would have been, what, uh, was he a third year graduate student when you were? When so I was then it was year. my third year. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, kind of fun here. We, when I came down to visit, we talked about Austrian economics. And I was pretty raw back then. Uh, I think I got my fellowship because of my knowledge of zone defense and basketball. <laughs> you were wearing a windbreaker suit and apologized that you were going to a basketball practice later that day. So we yeah, started yeah. talking about that. And I was coaching a travel team. And now, that when I look back at the stuff I wrote in my application, I'm like, yeah, I think he was more impressed with the basketball than the economics. No, no, no. You have, I had, I had keen uh, recognition of the talent. Is, uh, but uh, uh, the, um, um, you come in and you have Stringham ahead of you. Um, I always forget who's in the the class right above you. Um, my mistake. Bob Subrick is there. Um, but other than that, I, I'm not sure that, you know, Derek Yonai, I guess, maybe, and a couple others, but I don't really remember them as much as like Stringham and Virgil in that for, in that 98 class. But in your class, you have Scott and yourself, as well as Ann Bradley, at least, and then some others, Jason Osborne and some others that, but I mean, Ann and, and uh, Scott and yourself, you've gone on to have you know, great academic success in your various different avenues of which you've done that. Uh, talk a little bit about your cohort and, and your experience at Mason at the time. You're, you're, you know, a Brian Kaplan is sort of coming into his own uh, right while you're in graduate school. So uh, he doesn't yet have out the myth of the rational voter, but those, those articles that make that up are first starting to come out. Um you know what? You know, tell the tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what was going on at that time and 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 your cohort. Yeah, it's a, it was a fantastic time to be at GMU and to to learn from each other as well as from our professors. And you know, I I think of that cohort not as like a single year, but kind of like you said, starting with Stringham's class and then extending to the year year behind me too, right? Because you have Leeson and Coin there as well as as Ryan Opria, uh, and I spent just as much time with, with with those three guys as I did with people in my own class and ahead of me. Um, 
And, uh, you know, some of this is just kind of lucky that we show up at the same time and can can push each other. But I think you're exactly right that it was a great time educationally to be at GMU. As you said, you were just back there, which is important to work with you, but also at that time, because you didn't have the huge load of, of, of students and other obligations you do now. So it was a much uh, more one-on-one -on -one personal time at a cohort with that whole group of students together, really. Uh, I'm not sure that that interaction is easy to do anymore. Uh, so there was that, but there was also in terms of like the, so Austrian economics is exciting, exciting again at George Mason in a way that it kind of quieted down for a little while. Uh, and Stringham's a big guy at encouraging this among graduate students that guys, we can publish in this and we can get jobs afterwards. Don't listen to people who tell you, you got to do, uh, empirical, uh, something or other, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just don't listen to the, the BS. Uh, there's that, but there's also at this time. Well, you mentioned Brian's there with an exciting new research agenda related to public choice and obviously knowledgeable about Austrian economics and you're there, but Buchanan and Tulloch, this is kind of the, uh, the end of their stage of active engagement on a day-to-day -day basis in the program. So you still have that tradition. You get to take classes from and interact. And a year later you have Vernon Smith and his lab showing up and the, the conflux of these, a kind of resurgent Austrian program among professors, a new surge in experimental, but related to the political economy tradition that we care about. and still the, the legacy of the, the founders of public choice being there, I think set up the, the blend of interest that makes it a, a great environment when you get an enthusiastic cohort of students who want to push each other to, to embrace yeah. all of those research. You, uh, you got to interact with Tulloch some. Oh yeah, Tulloch was a blast. Do you have any memorable Tulloch stories? Everyone <laughs> has a Tulloch story. Oh, everybody has has plenty. I I yeah. took his class, uh, uh, topics in public choice, which really meant Gordon Tulloch in public choice. Uh, <laughs> that would meet twice a week in the morning, and all you'd read is Gordon's books. And, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the first day of class, and this is great because it's election day. Uh, he points to the first student because he never called on you, or he never let you raise your hand. He just points. Why is democracy good without giving me the definition of democratic? And right. I gets a few words in. That's ah, definition of democracy. And he goes around the room like this, and he finally gets to me. And I said something about kills fewer of its citizens maybe than dictatorships. But then I just started trashing democracy. And he said, if you don't democracy, you must be an anarchist. Anarchists believe in, in private roads. Anarchists believe in building glass bridges over private roads. People who believe in glass bridges are insane. You, sir, are insane. <laughs> <laughs> and moved on. And of course, that, I didn't know at the time, I'm like, what the hell is this? There, there was a, a ton that semester that was great. I ended up in that class. And I guess I had Ann Bradley in that one with me and Scott Bollier. I don't think Leeson and Coin were because they were in their first year when I was taking that. I was risk averse because uh, I was in second year classes. And usually that was like an elective for third year, but I didn't know how long right. Gordon would be around. So I'm like, I got to take Gordon's classes first <laughs> chance I can. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I bore the brunt of his arguments in that class. And it was great fun for at least two out of the three months. <laughs> now, uh, when, uh, um, so, so with, uh, you, you took my class at constitutional and all I remember about that is Chris and, and Pete were in that class and you guys just railed on me the entire time, uh, about how Buchanan, you know, was a statist and everything. And it was quite kind of fascinating, to be in the position of having to, you know, defend, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, some more 
you know, position on Buchanan. Um, the, uh, yeah, that so, was great. And by the way, Pete, you know, what comes out of that too, right? Is, uh, you know, Stringham was driving part of that and puts together yeah. that book, Anarchy, State, and Public Choice, that's going back yeah. to the, the Tulloch volumes from the 70s. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was great fun to be able to battle well, that's one thing that you did great as a faculty is you allowed your students who are really into this to argue with you in class. It, well, we had a blast. Rise for a, a great, great learning environment. Um, the um, the issue with Stringham uh, that uh, you know I am always very grateful to him is that when I returned to George Mason, the uh, the the zeitgeist among the students was that Austrian economics was stupid. And Ed not only wasn't going to take any of that, he was aggressively not going to take it. And, and so it was weird because I actually had, um, you know, Stringham was the one that was more aggressive. And then I followed, you know, his lead in some sense was like, you know, yeah, you know, like, uh, Stringham's right. You know, look at the record. You know, people get jobs, you know, by doing this. And because the claim was like always that, you know, you can't publish, you can't get a job, you need to not do it like this or whatever. And and it was uh, said very vociferously by the same people, same type of students who said it when I was a student, uh, which are, you know, empirical public choice guys who, you know, weren't even very happy that Buchanan was still teaching, right? I mean, when I was a graduate student and I was taking Jim Buchanan or Kenneth Folding, you know, who I thought were like economic royalty, my classmates that were of a different bent used to make fun of me. Like, why am I taking these old men? And then, of course, Buchanan won a Nobel Prize and they stopped saying things. But people forget between 1884 and 86, Buchanan didn't win the Nobel Prize, and so he was just like this old guy that was talking, you know, philosophy as far as they're concerned. And they thought they were doing science. And, you know, it was a it was an interesting dynamic. And I came back to George Mason and in, in 1998 after being gone for 10 years and the same thing was going on. I was like, what the hell? It's like Rip Van Winkle. Like I woke up and now I got this. But the thing was, is that Stringham would like make fun of it's not like Stringham would just simply argue with him. He literally would make fun of them. And it was like, oh, okay, I got like this guy here who, you know, is 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 willing to like take the lead. Uh, and, and he was great. I mean, I have to say having Ed there uh, was phenomenal. Um, yeah, he was very, very important. Really helped build the program. Very important for the culture of the cohort of students that, that I was involved with. Well, he encouraged me to do things. And I said, yeah, this is good. You know, to this, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, uh, you know, we had the seminar on Fridays uh, at, at that time. And the idea was, is that people would come and visit us on Fridays and then go to uh, NYU on Mondays, right? So we could share, you know, visitors. But then we did it late in the afternoon. So then we finished it with a uh, wine and cheese, you know, we'd have wine and cheese. That was Ed's idea. All right. And my idea was, oh, we're we're in Virginia. We're the Virginia school. So we're going to use Virginia wines. And oh. then, and then, yes. <laughs> and, and Lauren Lamasky, I brought Lauren in. And Lauren's, 
like shuddered and said, this is an Austrian seminar. The wines are supposed to be from the real Vienna, not from Vienna, Virginia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so anyway, we, uh, I, I had, uh, I, 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 I used to do that, uh, get the Virginia wines, which was, but I mean, we had the wine and cheese on Fridays and, Anyway, it was great. And Ed was Ed was significant part of that culture, as was you. I was going to say before when you did your cohort, the different one of the biggest difference between GMU and Texas Tech is we don't have a natural like meeting place off campus. That's in Arlington we did, but not in Fairfax. Fairfax is more suburban, spread out kind of thing, and uh, and and you became kind of a social focal point. You know, you had your you know, opening weekend barbecue and, you know, people would meet at that and talk and learn ideas and see who their cohort was and all of that stuff. And so I think that was, again, very valuable to creating that kind of uh, uh, social culture uh, within the students. Yeah. I mean, I've always tried to, to do that, uh, mostly just for my own enjoyment, but also uh, really yeah, yeah. when I was a grad student, but everywhere I was in San Jose too. Suffolk with the PhD students, not so much the faculty. It's certainly here at Tech, but I, you know, part of it, you know, it's uh, subject to constraints here in the Fairfax area. It's tougher, just like it was when I was at Suffolk in Boston, because the faculty are more sped up, spread out. It's a bigger pain for people to drive, and there's right. higher opportunity costs later in the day. So right. uh, I always wanted to have a Friday seminar at Su Suffolk with a social hour afterwards, and uh, no one would come to campus then. You had to squeeze it in at lunchtime on a Tuesday or Wednesday or something. Uh, versus, right. versus tech, nobody lives more than 20 minutes away from the office here. And uh, Friday afternoon after seminar, my colleagues and PhD students are probably the people I want to most hang out with in town anyway. So it's yeah, uh, it's awesome. Great. Yeah, it's I I, I can't I'll, I'll talk about Texas Tech in a little bit, but I I can't recommend it enough actually for young people to really think about it for a graduate school and junior faculty to think about if they see an opening there to jump at it, especially in the economics department, uh, which maybe we'll talk about, uh, but, uh, uh, but maybe not. And we'll just leave it at that. Um, all right. So you finished graduate school and you're, you're, you know, you publish Stringham publishes the whole group of you are publishing both in books that you're creating, but also in journal articles. You work with Bennett actually at the Journal of Labor Research, and you published a paper with in the Journal of Labor Research, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that came later, not as a grad student. That was a couple of years out. Uh, oh, that was after you were at San Jose State. Yeah, because Dave Scarbeck co-authored with me, and Dave was my undergrad student when I first arrived yeah. at San Jose State. So that was okay. a project out of class. Class, I think my first year there, maybe. Uh, okay. But this is actually worth mentioning too, because I know uh, with PhD students at George Mason and at Tech the kind of expectations we have for them on, on publishing when we talk about what they need to do to be able to secure good jobs and what the, the expectations were a lot. I, the bar was lower, I think, at GMU when I was there to be thought of as doing research as a grad student and doing it uh, well. I think I might have had six or seven publications, but they weren't all in journals. Uh, yeah, the, they were the in books so I think, you know, yeah. my when I was for journal articles, when I was leaving GMU, maybe a public choice, a Cato journal, a quarterly journal of Austrian economics, and uh, maybe, yeah. maybe one other, something like that. And that was considered like, oh, wow, you're doing fantastic at that time. And, you know, yeah. that, that's the type of thing that but I think the world's, I think the, 
I do think that the world's changed a bit. I'm not I'm not trying to poo-poo anything like that, but the very cohort that you're talking about, as well as other people, have gone on to become editors, co-editors, and and also referees at these places. At the time when you were coming out, the random referee that you were given at a place that like say other people are getting now would have been hostile. Right. It would have been hostile for the very approach. And now that's not the case. Um, referees look at it and say, oh, that's a reasonable position. The world's changed to some extent. I think that that pendulum swinging back a little bit now in the direction that it once was. But um, so I don't I don't think that you guys. So what I'm saying is I think you guys uh, published at that time that if you were writing those same papers today, I want to get to this in a second because I think actually this is an important thing. You might disagree with me on this. I think some of those papers potentially with another round of revision could have been in better journals today. But at that time, the, what would have been required to pass the argumentative bar would have been much higher and would have been, you know, you would have wasted a lot of years trying to chase after that, I think. Yeah, that, that might be the case. And I might have undershot back at that time, too, because I think uh, through at least the first four years after GMU, I think I only had maybe one rejection, uh, yeah. which means I probably should have been trying to play some higher and struggling more with them then. And either that or is exactly optimal, and but that's pretty unlikely. I mean, life has turned out pretty good for you, so you followed a pretty optimal path. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, there's an old adage, right? Deans can't read, but they can count. And, you know, if you're trying to compete in a very competitive game, let's say a tenure track job at an R1 university, there's two strategies to follow. One is high impact placement and the other one is lots of placements that in, in net have high impact, right? Yeah. So you're both having an impact in both ways. And maybe nowadays we advise students a little bit more to pursue to be a little bit more careful and shoot for higher impact journals. Um, and at that time we were more like, um, but, you know, but just publish, but my, my, what I introduced the students to, and I, I, you, you know, uh, I don't know how you'll react to this. Um, I, I don't think that you'll disagree with it. Um, but I try to tell the students well, that well, I, give me a chance. <laughs> yeah. I give them, I give them a picture of a, a set of concentric circles. And I refer to the, I say that all, all research is research in progress. So, right. And writing is research. So you need to learn how to write. We are professional writers for a living and we need to learn how to do our craft. And so then I draw a set of concentric circles and I have at the core, the JPE appy. And then I have at the, at the, at the concentric circle way out, JPE Chicago, right? And my argument is, is that along the way between JPE Appy and JPE Chicago, there's lots of journals that expand our network of, you know, who you're reaching, but they're not necessarily. So it's not like an either or I'm writing either for Appy or I'm writing for the JPE, which is what you hear a lot of people try to say, like when you go to these conferences and they try to give you advice or whatever. So I'm always like, look, you know, there's, you know, the public choice, the REE, the QJAE, uh, constitutional political economy. You know, there's, uh, you know, Southern Economics Journal. There's economic inquiry. There's places like that. Then there's, you know, and you and you try to learn how to 
expand your reach, that's a skill that you have to learn. And I guess that one of the things um, I wanted to ask you when we pivot a little bit to your research um, is about learning this argumentative bar, because I think that that's one of the things that you have become really kind of a master at. Uh, but first, tell us a little bit about your experience at SJSU, uh, you know, the work that you did with Stringham out there, um, uh, which was also policy as well as academic, um, and as well as teaching and program building. I mean, you guys built something at, at SJSU, which wasn't there before. You had master students and everything. And then, you know, you, as you said, you went to Suffolk and then you go to Texas Tech where you're given this opportunity. Um, you've learned a lot. That was about, you did that pretty quickly, right? I mean, how many years out were you when you went to Texas Tech? Were you even 10 years out? Yeah, just about. Just about 10 years. Yeah, I was four years at San Jose and five and a half at Suffolk. Right. So you were, so, you know, 10 years out and, and, you know, you are given this opportunity to build this, this, you know, major research center, which you had to build from scratch. So first you have what skills you learned to help put you in that position. And then what skills you learned on the fly to be able to pull off what you have pulled off. Yeah. So you have a whole lot that you talked about right there. Let's, uh, right. sorry, <laughs> stick with the journal thing first, and then let's go to the, the kind of institutional yeah. building stuff. So I think it was very fortunate at San Jose state to start my career there. Uh, also working with Ed and, and Jeff Hummel and a number of good people, uh, that this, the concentric ring thing there, you were pretty free there to, be able to earn tenure publishing lots of different ways. And I was concerned with becoming known as a producer first and foremost. So I worked on lots of different things, including the public policy stuff and outreach stuff at the same time and working on journal articles and selectively would push towards quality here or there, but it had a lot of freedom there. Uh, and that allowed me to learn how to write a lot better. I uh, work in two days a week with Independent Institute and having to write policy type stuff and op-eds with them then being pushed into the media past comfort zone on a regular basis and to public debate involving inclusionary zone. It was learning a lot of different skills at once and kind of had the freedom because we didn't have to shoot for a particular short list of journals while we were there. So right. you didn't yeah, exclude yeah. those, but you didn't focus narrowly that way. Uh, so it built a broader skill set that definitely became useful later when looking to get going here at Texas Tech. Uh, going to Suffolk, the journal focus narrowed a little bit for there was a new PhD program that was trying to be conscientious about improving on quality. Uh, and most of my effort there was working with our PhD students there. I had actually excellent cohort of, of students that I worked with in the five and a half years yeah. that I was there, uh, yeah. who were really the, very, very talented, very, uh, and, and energetic kids. Yeah. Yeah. It, for coming out of a, uh, a program that was a, a new PhD program who all got tenure track jobs and have established research programs. And yeah. uh, some of them leadership roles in, in this aspect of the profession, I think have done fantastic. Um, and then coming to, to, to Texas Tech. So this, the institution building part is something that I've always been, you know, my time at George Mason was so fantastic with the cohort of students and faculty as around the research program. Once you leave, I was always looking to how can we recreate some aspect of this? 
And yeah. at San Jose State with Ed Lopez and Ed Stringham and Jeff Hummel and some others that we were trying to, to do this there with the master's level. Uh, at Suffolk, I was working with David Turk, who had done his PhD with Buchanan back in the, the 60s at UVA, uh, and trying to create that environment for our PhD students there, which was good in the department, but the university wasn't the right environment for the, the graduate research program the same way. And then tech came along with this opportunity. Actually, Pete, I remember you called me, uh, or called or emailed. So either way, my reaction was the same. When you first said something, Ben, would you be interested in going to West Texas to start a, a new program? And I said, why? Well, I'll, I'll make it nicer. Why the hell would I do that? Uh, just <laughs> an edited version of my real comment. Uh, but then again, here I am. Uh, yeah. After I started talking to him, I realized what the opportunity was. And your phrase when you said it is, I had to start my own program here. And it's I, I would phrase it, I got to start my own program here. Uh, because of course, I mean, Texas Tech has uh, an ag econ department, a business school econ department, an arts and sciences. There's been stuff going on here for a while, but the Free Market Institute itself was founded by a donation before I got here, but I was the first person hired with the mandate to hire staff and then initially just two more faculty to get started. But this means that uh, I got to put the team together. And uh, Pete, you know, you've coached travel teams before. When you get to pick the players, it's a lot more fun than when you get handed the <laughs> handed the roster yeah, yeah. and said, what the hell exactly. you going to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I went to, uh, you know, uh, uh, when I was coaching at the local high school, I went to a coaching clinic with Jay Wright. And Jay Wright called, called the coach of Villanova. And he called called me out, and uh, he was asking me. He says he says, you know, where do you coach? And I said, oh, the local high school. And this is, you know, and he laughed, and he said, the local public high school. And I said, yeah. And he said, man, he go, I can't say what he said to the group of audience there, but he said, you got a a, a set on you, basically. He says because he goes, I would never coach in anything but a Catholic school where I can recruit. He goes, I don't want to show up and have a five foot five kid be my center <laughs> because that's just the luck of the draw of the high school that year or whatever. And I was just sitting there smiling and I got home and I called my brother and I told him this story. And he said, that's why the public high school coaches are better because they can win with, with just a random draw of, 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 of talent. And I'm like, huh, but I wonder why it is that all the good coaches actually go and coach in the Catholic schools or go coach in the, in, in the private university, private you know, uh, high schools before they go to college. Anyway, I do think that uh, that was, uh, I mean, I want to come back to what you've done at Texas Tech but I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about at least three of your books uh, and mainly two of them uh, because it relates to this research thing that I was talking about, which is that, you know, one of the things that you've done in Out of Poverty and Wretched Refuse is that you have chosen to argue with professional economists, right, and try to raise the argumentative bar so that the argument doesn't just please Ben Powell, but pleases or convinces other other people in rather, you know, very convincing fashion. So in Out of Poverty, it's about sort of the rate of development that takes place as we move from sweatshops into sort of advanced sort of productive activity and the benefits of the sweatshop for development. Um, I think one of the really interesting arguments that you give in there is, 
you know, how long it took in England, how long it took in the United States, how long it took in like, you know, uh, East Asia or whatever, um, and, and this development process. But even in Wretched Refuge, you even go even higher, which is this issue of the cultural uh, aspects of immigration and whether or not the immigrants bring a uh, bad, quote unquote, bad culture to the country that they move to, or whether or not they move because they're adopting the culture of the country they want to move to. Um, and, and you treat, you, you know, you're taking on George Borjas. It's not like you're taking on Mickey Mouse, right? Uh, you're taking on George Borjas. In the first book, you're kind of leveraging economists. So you're adopting even Paul Krugman to defeat like, you know, people that are anti-sweatshops. But in the second book, you are really taking on like very mainstream economists who have tried to raise this question and you're challenging that. Talk a little bit about the learning in that process of between those two books. Yeah. So the first one, Out of Poverty, which, by the way, we should talk about offline afterwards, because I think I'm inspired to do a second edition on that. Okay. Uh, working on some new projects related to it now. Uh, but it's the outcome. You know, I had done this article with Dave Scarbeck comparing the wages, and I started giving public talks, uh, particularly on campus, but other places too, and debates on the topic. And over time, my, my lecture on it got bigger and bigger than what my research articles were, and it became obvious. Like, I could pull this together. The book's really kind of the outcome of a series of debates and lectures where I started covering the bigger process of development. And, you know, my my analytical framework is, you know, uh, a mix of uh, standard price theory, UCLA insights, Austrian economics, public choice, but not everything I do is obviously and explicitly that. And I think you yeah. and other people who are careful in reading see a very Austrian interpretation of development in that out of poverty book. But I think if you hand it to a normal uh, mainstream trained economist, they don't notice that. They notice a description yeah. of a process of development, which might be a little bit different, but uh, doesn't jump off the page as being radically outside of uh, mainstream thought. I mean, Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman was right in the end, Ben. There's only yeah. good economics and bad economics. It's just that good economics is is pays attention to some of these issues that we care about. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's always motivated me in terms of, so honestly, my research program in some sense is whatever's pissing me off uh, is what I tend to, to work on. Uh, and bring those type of insights to applied program uh, applied issues that I think are a big deal and uh, can make a difference in the world. So I don't mind working on controversial things, obviously. In fact, I kind of like it yeah. or else equal people pay more attention if you work on on stuff that yeah. has that. And Sweatshops had that that flavor to it when I was working on that book. The book's now, I guess, 10 years that it's been out, which is why it's kind of in need of an update. Um, and you know, a lot of that was taking on interdisciplinary stuff, not so much uh, economists as business ethicists as well, um, right. who staked out more of a position on it than, you know, as you say, Paul Krugman back when he was an economist and it used to be bad on this issue. No, but, they understood this. I just was going to say something about that real quick and then I'll let you continue, which is that I think it's important for the listeners to contextualize what the world was like 10 years ago with regard to sweatshops. So uh, there was uh, a priest at uh, St. John's that got a player on the soccer team to refuse to wear his Nike jersey, you know, because of the sweatshop issues. And the kid lost his scholarship for it. 
you know, because, you know, obviously St. John's is getting Nike gear for a reason. And, you know, the priest convinced it. That's the kind of argument that was all over the universities at the time. And I remember thinking, I, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was watching a golf tournament and Phil Mickelson had a KPMG hat on. And I turned to somebody, I was in a, a like a big function. And I said, I wonder how much the hell he gets paid to wear that hat. And, and uh, the guy was in there was from KPMG. And he says, I know exactly. He gets paid $1 million a year to wear the KPMG hat and show up at our corporate outing once a year and hit the tee shot on the 18th pole for everyone or whatever, right? You know, that's what he does. And I turned to the guy and I said, damn it. I said, I want Nike to pay me a million dollars a year and I'll wear a giant Nike hat and teach all my economics lectures about why it's okay that they're like skitching, stitching soccer balls in a factory <laughs> somewhere like that. And I said, I should get paid that. And everyone in the room just stared at me like I was insane, you know, like that. But that's the world that you were entering into. You know, there was protests on campus. They wanted to divest, you know, from Nike and, and, and whatnot. And then you're showing this whole thing about the necessity of, yeah. if you don't get on the bottom of the economic ladder, there's no way you can climb up the economic ladder, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, first, if you don't understand price theory, you're as likely to hurt these workers as you are to help them. So right. what I try to do in that research program is uh, adopt. So this is a very Austrian type welfare analysis here. It's a means ends analysis. They say what the ends are, workers of the third world, not Pete Betke's million dollars for a Nike swoosh hat while economics. <laughs> and now the question is, how do we improve it? And what I try to do in that work is say, not only use economics to say your solutions don't work and make it worse, but there's a better way forward that includes the, the main way historically has been the process of development. But it does also relate to the immigration stuff because the other way is give them better opportunities. That means visas to come to places where their opportunity cost is, is higher than, than where they live which kind of segued into some of doing some of the immigration research. In fact, uh, the first time I debated immigration was with Peter Brimlow uh, in front of the Philadelphia Society. And I think I was a substitute for you. I think <laughs> you were supposed to talk on that and they got me in. So I got to debate Brimlow and uh, I got invited for more and more immigration lectures over time. And I wrote pop pieces on a journal article or two, but it wasn't a big part of my research program until actually I got to, to Texas Tech. Because at that point, you know, it occurs to me, it's seeing that it's not that immigration is hotly debated among economists, but what economists debate on immigration is like this little narrow gap. And they they do it vigorously. If you look at some of the debates about the Muriel boat lift and what effect it has on wages of Don High School yeah. graduates in Miami, when it ha these people are bombarding each other with studies and uh, different empirical techniques to sort it out, calling each other frauds, basically, on their data of sample selection sometimes. And it's all boiling down to, like, does it have no effect on the wages of high school dropouts or, like, a negative 7% effect <laughs> for, like, two years? And I'm like, if you're, like, right. talking about, like, doubling world GDP if you free people to move, right. if it's the worst version of that, who gives it? And Borhars then published this as this article in the Journal of Economic Literature where, you know, he, he makes the claim of, there's not this, this is a response to your new colleague, Michael Clemens, his great article, the classic uh, trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk, where he's talking right. about the global gains from more open migration and Borjas's response is, but this all predicates the institutions that are responsible for the productivity in the destination country remaining unchanged. If those were to deteriorate, then not only do you not get the gains from the immigrants, but you could actually 
you know, the, the intuitive way of talking about this is if all the Cuban immigrants from Cuba came to Miami and turned Florida socialist, they wouldn't get rich moving to Florida and Floridians would get poor. Now, that, right. that's the idea behind Borjas, basically. Here. Right. Um, I mean, there's multiple channels it could take, but that's the, the general transmission mechanism. And so it occurred to me, well, that's, that's an empirical conjecture and empirical conjectures require empirical evidence. Uh, let's start thinking through some of the, the sort mechanisms, uh, the selection biases of who moves, how they select where to go, but then also looking at the, the evidence of this. And that's what uh, Wretched Refuse didn't start out being a book. It started out being a, a one paper that I, I did with a few co-authors responding to Borhaus, and I, I sent it to, to George and he responded back something. It was a cross country study of economic freedom and migration stocks and flows. And, he says, you know, it has all the benefits and all of the drawbacks of any cross-country study. What I'd like to see is a large exogenous shock of immigrants and what it does to institutions uh, in a modern welfare state. And I was like, I'm reading it and I'm like, well, duh, Israel. Everybody's used Israel for labor market impacts and stuff from when the Soviet emigration restrictions going away. Right. Yeah. So I did the next study on that. And uh, at the same time, Alex Narasto was starting to, actually, Alex was involved in that one with me. Uh, starting to do some studies and we collaborated back and forth on a few and eventually I was like each one of these journal articles doesn't have a very big uh, exclamation point at the end they all have drawbacks of how so you talk about evidentiary standards I viewed every one of them as very imperfectly addressing a very important question so right. huge amount at stake really hard to get good evidence the I'll say bad evidence that I could do in any one of the articles said a little bit, but not a lot. And I started thinking when we put all the different ones together that have the different limitations in the end, they say something bigger together. And right. that's what that book became. And, and still the closing chapter explicitly says there's no QED here. It's not that immigrants couldn't ever come with them and bring norms that undermine the values of the destination country in a way, this is important, in a way that undermines productivity. The argument's not that immigrants don't bring values with them, that they don't change a society. It's that they don't do so in a way that destroys destination country productivity in those right. places that are, are now rich and relatively freer. Uh, but that the weight of the evidence with all these different kind of imperfect takes at it, say, if this was an overall thing, as George Borjas just blurts out and says it is and then models, we should be picking up some of it that we don't yeah. have any of it. The burden of proof is upon you who would restrict immigration and deny these massive gains. Uh, but Brian, I think your colleague, Brian Kaplan, argues convincingly in some of his work that basically almost every major moral standard, if the economics is right, would say we should have much greater immigration flows. Yeah. So, freedom. so again, I think, I think, that, I think uh, that, actually, I think my, if you could take between those two books, the sweatshop book, I have a very high degree of confidence in my answers being, yeah. being right. The immigration book, I think is an even more important question. And I attach a lower probability that my evidence is right, but I think it's better than what anybody else has done so far. Yeah, but I think you're also very explicit about that, which is one of the reasons why you can engage in the conversation. It's not like you're trying to engage in insulating stratagems or anything like that. Um, I, I think that among, you know, like your generation of Austrian economists, I mean, first of all, your cohort in general, what you talked about, they have been able to communicate with very mainstream economists at a very consistent rate in a way that um, very few, certainly no cohort 
of Austrian economists have done since the old guys. Right. So, you know, Morgan Stern, Machlup, all of those, they were doing this all the time. And, you know, they reached the level of professional success teaching at Princeton and Harvard and whatnot that, you know, we're, we're, we're far from achieving yet. But in the meantime, you know, no single group of cohort of Austrian economists I would venture or Austrian influence economists I would venture have been as successful at bringing aspects of that research program to professional economists as, you know, Chris Coyne and, and you and, uh, you know, Virgil and, and uh, Pete Leeson, obviously, and Ryan Opria, especially. I mean, he's a, an editor at the AER now. And, you know, again, you were saying I have this unique talent. I, I, I do, you know, people might say, will say to me, oh, Ryan's research program has nothing to do with you know, Austrian economics, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Actually, it does. You know, take a look at like the way he does that. He couldn't have written that paper had he not spent those early years, you know, doing, you know, the Austrian kind of thing the way he did, even if he does, even if he wouldn't say that. But I think he would say that, actually. Uh, I think he's Ryan would would actually probably say that. But um, single, anyway, the single best seminar I've seen at our seminar series at Texas Tech was was Ryan's a uh, little over a year ago on operationalizing some stuff about complexity where it can completely undermine behavioral economics conclusions. It's classic like transaction cost economic stuff. And it comes yeah. from, I think it comes from his background that you're describing too. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, Ryan, first of all, Ryan is very talented guy, obviously and very ambitious and he's done that. And I, I think this is a, as a, uh, you know, so now I'm going to actually even, so I think that you're you're because of the way you've approached this, you have addressed this issue of the argumentative bar. It's one of the hardest things that we have to teach our own students about how to be a professional economist. That's part of my JPE to JPE thing is learning how to do that. But now, you know, I don't think you'll laugh at me, but I think that listeners might laugh at first thing. I actually think you do that in your Socialism Sucks book, too. The social the socialism sucks book has an explanation point as a title, but the book itself is a very very carefully reasoned book. Outside of the stories about the beer and everything, so so tell tell people a little bit about some of the some of the things in terms of the 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 stories that you tell in that book that you get you know like Sweden and and other kinds of places that you you know visited and interacted with and learned institutional details about. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote that one with Bob Lawson, too. And, and Bob's a great observational economist, too, who is strong in the in the force. And by that, I mean, the economic way of thinking, too, and uh, travels and conversations with with him. I mean, the book's a pretty accurate telling of our, our travels and conversations in that time. Yeah, yeah. Did it. And, you know, the uh, you know, embedded underneath, actually, he and I see economics very similarly, I think, uh, and the kind of comparative institutional and Austrian perspectives that come come through and part of, they underlie all of those observations in the book. The question was that the real challenge in that book was if the two of us could write in the style that you need for a pop novel to, yeah. to pull. So like our goal the whole time was to be like, uh, do better economics than P.J. O'Rourke, but not quite be as funny. Yeah, but you 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 have 
So I, but I, you know, I, I'm going to say, I mean, I, you have a lot of very just basic observations and, and summary data that is very relevant to the debates about what these countries are really up to and, and whatnot. Um, you know, well, yeah. and, you know and going that, all the way, yeah, go ahead. A lot of that, you know, comes, I mean, we're doing a tour around the world here of varieties of capitalism and socialism. And that's Bob's career of, of the index right. of economic freedom. So we, we, we had some good raw material to, to work sure. with and, and tie this all to. It also goes back to our conversation about Di Lorenzo, because uh, one of the things that Di Lorenzo taught me when I was a student is he used to tell us that uh, we should always get three outputs from any one research project. You should be able to have a research paper that gets published in a journal. You should be able to have a policy paper that gets published by Cato or one of the policy think tanks. And you should have op-eds, right? And you learn that skill to a max while you're working at independent. And uh, so that's your SJSU independent yep. kind of period. And then you brought that you know, with you. But part of that, as you mentioned, is learning how to communicate to people who aren't necessarily you know, uh, what's the right word, a uh, captive audience of your undergraduates, you know, that have to listen to you or whatever. Right. So. Right. Um, and so you have to learn how to make them, you know, read. How, how, how have you done? I just got recently invited to give a talk. I haven't squared it away yet at a, a local public library here. And you gave a lot of talks that weren't necessarily just to, you know, student groups or whatever with Socialism Sucks. How, how did that go over? Oh, it's great. I mean, that was the best speaking tour I've ever done. It was it, Bob, Bob and I did some of it jointly and some of it separately. Uh, it was by far the most demand, but it's also the most fun to give because as I got to stash a beer under the podium as a prop and drink while giving the talk, <laughs> get into character. Yeah, yeah, given the sal all... salty language in the book, I was free to be myself in front of the crowd too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the one thing that hasn't happened yet with it, Pete, that eventually will, and I haven't been giving as many of those talks lately, is like, so like socialism, uh, the, the sweatshops book, I've done so many public talks on that and done them in front of hostile audiences, places where I've had protests. But because it's a sympathetic means ends book, I can yeah. do those very comfortably. I'm like, one day I'm going to walk into a socialism sucks talk and it's going to have an audience that hates me. And I'm like, oh, this is just going to flop on its face because uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just not that style uh, book. Uh, I, book. I, I can't yeah, yeah. I can't convey the same level of empathy to my audience in that as I would yeah. be able to on the other. Out of poverty, you're trying and, to and by actually... the way, Meanwhile, the, the immigration one, same way. I've done that to very conservative immigration skeptic crowds, but I can do that one as a means and I care about freedom. If these people came and destroyed our freedoms, I would be against yeah. it too. But now let's take this seriously. And guess what? I'm not a crazy lefty making apologists for immigration. Like right. the, so the socialism sucks when I, I someday I'm going to walk in and flop on a talk on that one in a way yeah. that I'm quite comfortable with anti audiences on the other two books. Yeah. Uh, that'll be different. The, uh, the the out of poverty book, I mean, that is the thing to stress is that the bottom line is how to lift up these workers in these dire cir circumstances. What's the way for them to rise up through the process of development? And I think that's key. All right, I'm going to pivot to the last two questions. One of has to do with 
uh, author, uh, uh, author's uh, priority of things, uh, but we'll save that one for last. But uh, the first one has to do with, uh, I want you to give a little pitch for TTU. I've been a visiting professor at TTU twice now over the 10 years that you've been in operation uh, for extended period of time. I visited other times. I think it's uh, one of the most amazing uh, programs in the country, in the world, actually. And the development that's taken place there is phenomenal. Now, I'm, I'm biased because I sit also on your board, but I 100% endorse uh, what you're doing there. And I would recommend it to anyone to seriously consider for either graduate school or, as I said, if an opportunity arises. And I think if you look at what people have done when they've taken advantage of the opportunity. Let's just look at my colleague, Vincent Geloso. Vincent would not be the economist he is had he not gone to Texas Tech and worked with you guys. And uh, he was there for two years, maybe three years, but two years, I think. Um, and uh, it's just amazing what Vincent, uh, his productivity and, and everything is. And he gets a lot of that from the period of time there. You have you know, students that are, are, you know, publishing in very well-known journals, as you said, you know, meeting that act, uh, you know, you just had an outstanding student last year that ended up in an R1 and, uh, you know, research university back in his home state. So he's like thrilled. Um, and so anyway, give the pitch for why it is, but keep in mind that I'm recruiting the big guy uh, from Israeli professional basketball as much as you are for this year. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you have, I think you have a leg up on that one. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so you are biased on my board, but you're also biased as uh, the, the number one place that I lose students to when I'm trying to get them to come here. So cuts both ways there. Uh, yeah. Now, that, thank you. That's very generous, Pete. You know, I'm thrilled with what we've been able to do as a group here at, at Tech over the last, uh, it's going to be our 10-year anniversary in the spring. Uh, and for getting started here and having Chuck Long join me uh, when we first started to now we have nine faculty who, you know, we all share a common interest in, in things related to political economy that you and I care about. But each right. one of our faculty really has kind of different specializations and, and, and different strengths. So, it, you know, kind of thinking of concentric circles, like you think of like the core faculty when we first got started, very, very tightly aligned in uh Austrian public choice the same way, but then as we've added faculty, people having interest in that, but having interest in competencies and other areas beyond that yeah. that add to our our graduate education so that we can uh, round out a, a an overall uh, program. I mean, I view, we do lots of things here at the Free Market Institute, but the, the core business model is about training PhD students to become future professors who, who teach about these ideas. And everything else is kind of built around that, our, our public programming and our our outreach stuff all helps to funnel into, into that. And we're kind of yeah. unique in that we're not a department, we're an institute, we're university-wide, so we can work with people in different departments. We have PhD fellows in applied economics. We have PhD students in, in political science right now too. Uh, and we have faculty who are in both those departments as well as the business school uh, and some out of satellite branch down at Angelo State too. And we string together our PhD courses across departments. So you basically customize a field of study related to the expertise of the Free Market Institute and then operationalize that in, in your research program. And uh, we're nine faculty and this year, I think, 15 PhD fellows and that right now is about the size we want to be, uh, maybe if uh, trending up to 20 PhD fellows total 
across all years eventually. Um, but it's a small environment, uh, uh, very direct engagement, you know, kind of like what my cohort was with you when we were at George Mason, yeah. a small cluster within a bigger, bigger group, uh, except yeah. here that that cluster is the whole size of it. Uh, and the focus, I mean, a lot of this I learned from you, Pete, about how to mentor grad students and work with them and get them engaged in research projects right away. And uh, that's also true of my excellent colleagues that I have here, all of them, uh, to a person co-author with PhD students in the department. And that's how we get them learning how to write and do research and and learning how to professional, give a professional presentation, learning how to teach classes. I mean, it's amazing, you know, all the little things that go into making someone competitive in an increasingly competitive environment. Well, we've had great, great luck with that. So with, you know, we've had postdocs and PhD fellows and uh, all but one of them have full time positions here in the U.S. now uh, after 10 years. Uh, and actually all but one of those are tenure track academic lines at universities, but other ones that. Uh, economist for Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, but for Institute Getting Started, I've been thrilled with our placements, and I think it's a testament to the quality of the students we're getting in and the quality of the work my colleagues uh, yeah. do with me in, in training the students to get them out. But, you know, I think coming to to, to Texas Tech, or for that matter, George Mason, if, if you go in and, and economics, despite some of the changes in the profession you're noting, if, if you come out with a few published research papers, the ability to present and teach, uh, yeah. pretty much a hundred percent track record. You get a tenure track academic job. That's a pretty good life and can keep doing these things. So it's thrilling to be able to do it, do it here in West Texas, a fantastic environment. The university structure is actually really supportive of free market Institute here. And yeah. our, our West Texas supporters and donors are, are fantastic. And honestly, you know, I said this a little bit earlier that the, about the environment of Fairfax, Boston, whereas being in Lubbock, Lubbock's, you know, some people, oh, do I want to go out to, to Lubbock, Texas? It's actually a grad student. You're going to be entirely consumed into your uh, into your PhD studies anyway. And if you're with a cohort of faculty who are also like that, it's easier to have this type of relationship where our seminars go on Friday afternoons. You see people in the yeah. evening and uh, yeah. it's uh, it's been great. So there, there, there's your quick pitch for it, Pete. <laughs> Yeah, my, my uh, utility function is different from others, though, <laughs> and I would say that it's also the case that uh, Texas Tech owes you some money because uh, during the period of time that you've been there, uh, you've been to the, the NCAA championship game in Sweet 16, and that's due to your presence, I think, in the in the box cheering the team on. Right. Uh, and so I love watching the, the, the energy of the place. Uh, is amazing and uh, it just creates the whole it just is just a, a, just an exciting place and what's happened to Lubbock in the decade since you moved there is amazing too well I, I'm glad you phrased it that way because if they the administration read my book about sweatshops and compensating differentials they'd say that now that we're good at basketball they should be cutting my pay because I'm getting a much better <laughs> job because I have access to world-class basketball right near my house <laughs> yeah that is true all right one last question. So we had a controversy at the end of my interview with Scott Bullier that he insisted that, uh, uh, you know, I asked him a question about his his sports because Scott has, uh, you know, devoted an amazing amount of energy to being a, a, a damn good, you know, marathon runner. And he's he's running New York. He's running Boston. 
and he he taught remembered running in Boston and uh, he ran and he loved the fact that you came out to see him and cheer him on and that you took him on a pub tour after he was done. So that's how he did his recovery. Um, but he said that he introduced you to a term uh, at the end of that because it was a very hot day. And he says you took him on, you took him without letting him take a shower. So he had to go around with a swamp ass. And he says he invented that term and you, and you use it in, in your book. And he said that he thinks you should offer him a citation. Uh, what do you have to say about that yeah, to solve it, that it, issue? D deans are great at Deans are great at taking credit for other people's work. So Scott, Scott <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at that. That's awesome, actually. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations again on the Free Market Institute having its 10th uh, you know, anniversary. And also for the fantastic work you're doing as a, a scholar and as a teacher. It's really a credit uh, to you what you've been able to do and the network of students that are spreading out. Uh, oh, one last thing I didn't mention to everyone that they should know, just to understand the magnitude of things. I have been at Ben's uh, public events at, in Lubbock where he's had close to a thousand people in the room uh, to see a talk, public talk. Um, and I've been at Angelo State where uh, Brian Kutzinger, who's only a second year professor there with Eduardo, who's also a second year professor there. And they get close to 200 kids to come out to listen to an economics talk. Now, that's pretty amazing. You know, you go to a lot of environments and professors can't generate that kind of excitement about the work that they're doing. And so just as a Besides the longevity of the project, besides the graduate student workshops and whatnot, it's also just the excitement that you're generating about economic reasoning in these environments that, uh, you know, your your programs have done. And so congratulations for that, um, because at the end of the day, you know, our biggest impact is going to be whether or not we impact economic literacy in this country. And it's a huge problem that people can't count. They can't understand what's going on. And we need it at each university and each college, step by step, to uh, beat back uh, the economic illiteracy that's out there. And you're doing a fantastic job of doing that, both in Lubbock, but then in spreading out with all of your your uh, prodigy that are going all over the place. So congratulations. Well, well, well thank you, Pete. Wouldn't be here without you. And uh, thanks for having me on, on today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.